and welcome to Riding the Elephant, Doof Media's dive into Fred Saberhagen's Empire of the East and Book of Swords series. I'm Ruben Morehouse. I'm Elliot Diebold. And this is a pilot for a new show that we're running as part of our pilot season. If you like this show and you'd like to see it continue, please leave your feedback on this pilot using the form in the show notes below. Thanks, Funderfulness, for donating for this pilot season episode. Now, speaking of pilots, Elliot, onto the show. I, I get that because we've, yeah. we've made it just far enough in that I we'll can understand We'll get to that in that chapter joke. six. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, so we, I guess, format note, we're going to be talking about the first book of Empire of the East, which is called The Broken Lands. We'll be talking about the first six chapters. I think um, it's about the first half of that book. Yes, uh, which feels like a good chunk. So yeah. let's see how we go. Um now, chapter one is an interesting chapter because we're in chapter one, we're following uh, this evil warlord named Ecumen, who we come to learn is this kind of conqueror who has conquered, you know, the broken lands, which is okay. Let's just stop for a second here, shall we? What I feel like it's such a sad name to have called your place. And when <laughs> you're a conqueror and I found out it's called the broken lands, I was like, oh, he's just called it that because like he's come in and broken it. But that's just what it's called, and that's so depressing. Like, could you imagine living in a place that's called the Broken Lands <laughs> and not being an oppressed people? Um, yeah, I mean, I can think of some places in real life that have kind of, like, shitty names in their local language, you know? Mm. I, I, I can see it. Um, I wonder if it's going to have, like, a hidden meaning, like, so much of, of the, the book here. Um, that we're covering is about like uncovering some of the mysteries of this land. Yes, I want like there's there's probably going to be more to the name. Um, yeah, maybe it was called that long in the past, and it, that name has stuck around somehow. Yeah, yeah, I could exactly. see that. Anyway, so uh, back on track. Uh, Ecumen, this warlord, has conquered the broken lands, and he kind of rules from this uh, castle on the east, and he he seems basically to have complete control over the lands um, with a small resistance that call themselves the Free Folk uh, that hide out kind of towards the West. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, because this is labelled Chapter 1, but it's it's more of a prologue, really. Yeah, um, it's As far as I can tell, because it's at least where we're up to. We haven't returned to Ekerman's point of view. So it, it felt more like a prologue to me with the rest of it in mind. Because this is the villain that we're following and yeah. we meet our hero or, you know, group of heroes-ish um, throughout the rest of the book. You're right. Um, but it's interesting. The fact that it's not flagged as a prologue, I think, makes it more effective because you kind of really, you're not just, you're not in the mindset of, oh, this is just a temporary thing and we'll get to the actual story in mm. chapter two. You're in the mind of, okay, this is the story. Like, this is the characters. I'm paying attention because <laughs> this is apparently who I'm going to be following this whole thing. And you, you really do get into Ekumen's mind and stuff, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I do like that it's not a prologue because it feels like it's telling you to take it more seriously, if that makes sense. I, yeah, I do. Because there is a tendency to gloss over details in prologues and assume that it will be clarified later. Um, yes. And I, I, like, yeah. So I guess to still sort of frame it as a bit of a prologue, I. I really like it as one um, mm. because like being in Ekerman's head allows us to kind of get this very broad strokes, high level understanding of the world. Yeah. Uh, like, you know, he, he gives us a little insights into this whole magic versus technology thing that we'll get into. 
he gives us the overview of the broken lands as someone who's just come in and conquered it it makes sense that he has this sort of high level understanding of the wider region and where it's all at politically because that's actually his agenda um yeah i i wonder whether so we'll we'll meet rolf who is our protagonist in the next chapter but i, I i'm interested to hear what you think about the fact that this doesn't just start with Rolf, who is a farmer boy, and it starts with Ecumen, who knows the world and gives us this kind of, you know, uh, synopsis of where the world is at, basically, just by the fact of, of his role in the story. I'm interested whether you think that's a, a positive or a negative compared to the idea that it starts with Rolf and we uncover things like the magic and the technology as we get to them. I'm kind of unsure which I would prefer more. Yeah, because definitely, I think most of the stuff that's established here um, that pertains to the wider world has sort of been re-established for Rolf throughout the yes. rest of what we've read. And I'm yes. sure the rest of these specifics that come up between these wizards and the Ekman's daughter and all that, that will probably also start to come together. Um, yeah. But f for now, like, like you're right, most of what we see here kind of gets re-established, but I think... I think it was important to get me into the story that it did it all here. I'm not going to lie, because, like, Rolf uh, seemingly was an idiot before. Yeah, he's he not the most engaging character at the start, is well, he? He's well, a bit I, of a... I mean, I guess he, he, he's yeah. like a farm boy who lives on a remote farm. So, like, of course, he's yes. not exactly worldly. Um, yeah. And, like, I, like, slowly discovering alongside him all this stuff about technology and magic, I don't think would have grouped me the same way as, like, the, this fantastic scene of of um breaking down this this wizard really yeah. got me invested in what this world was and the, and all the stuff with the technology uh i i think it was good to sort of sh like show your hand in this way yeah um as an author so i was like whoa this is really cool and then we can sort of take a step back meet rolf establish like him and his role and then start to weave the world into it but i was already hooked yeah. on the world yeah, that's fair enough. I think you're right. I think maybe I think I would have enjoyed it more if it was just Rolf, but I probably would have bounced off it a bit harder just coming in as it's Rolf the Farm Boy's story to start with. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I'm sure we'll talk about some of that stuff next chapter. Um, yes. But I also think that the, the thing that this prologue, um, I'm, I'm just going to keep calling you it You can't that. just keep calling it a prologue. <laughs> it's chapter one. Yeah. Okay. The, I think the other thing that chapter one really does is it starts setting that time frame. Like here we learn... Ekerman's daughter's getting married, and um, that's basically the time he's really worried about because that's when the resistance could act to really hurt him. And so you're immediately like, okay, because uh, there's there's no, I, I don't think there's any delusion that this is the good guy, even when you start the story. Like, you already yeah. know that he's the baddie. Um, yeah, he's like torturing somebody. So you're kind of like, all right, I, I get what the tone of this is. Yeah, and he's and he, like, he's sort of openly the conqueror working for the distant empire of the East. And you're like, yes. okay, so he's the baddie. And, and so then you're like, okay, so now we know that the resistance, and that's the other thing, resistances are never the baddies. Um, <laughs> yeah, I can't think of a single time where someone's <laughs> talked about, oh, we've got a quash the resistance and it hasn't just been like they're going to be our protagonists yeah i i helped um matt do uh a book club last year for the black company this book reminded me like a, a fair chunk of the black company uh and in that the resistances of the bad guys in the sense that they're against the protagonists but i think uh one of the things about the black company was the protagonists weren't necessarily the good guys yeah um but yeah anyway so so this this chapter really does a good job of saying hey 
the resistance is going to strike. It's going to be at this upcoming wedding. And so instantly when we flick back to Rolf, we have this sense of, well, we know things are going to move towards this wedding fairly yeah. soon. So there's not yeah. that aimless sort of like, you know, oh, is he going to spend four years training to learn weapons as he kind of hints out at some point? It's like, no, there's this wedding coming up. It's it's going to it's going to yeah. move at a good pace. There's no time for a training montage. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, so so the chapter is us following Ekumen as his two kind of wizards, his second in commandy kind of group, um, whose names are Elslud and Zarf, uh, <laughs> which great wizard names. Um, they they battle this captive that they've taken, who is seemingly a high ranking member of the Free Folk Resistance. Um, and they eventually manage to kind of subdue and kill him, but he delivers this final line of prophecy towards them. Yeah. And, and, and so, okay, I guess, you know, we, we get our first look at the magic of this world. And yeah. I, I want to start talking about that because, like, I kind of like the, I don't know if subtlety is the right word because it's also mm. grandiose, but not in a, like, you know, boomy explosion kind of grandiose way. It's, it's almost kind of cosmically powerful. Mm. Um, like the, the, the whole scene is kind of Ekerman notes. If you didn't know about magic, you might just think it was three old guys standing in a room. <laughs> standing silently. Yeah. Totally. <laughs> but actually it's like this cacophony of magic going off. And there are like these little signs where suddenly the roof seems to grow like a hundred times bigger. Um, yep. in a way that doesn't like make sense to Ekerman. Yes. So like I just I loved that as a way of like, you know, this isn't magic where we're gonna, you know, who can throw the biggest fireball at the other person. It's this kind of very soft magic that we don't understand, like in that way, but it, it it's it's not showy. It's just kind of like and then weird shit happens because that yeah. it's it's very mystical magic. I, I want to talk about how it's really interesting to me that Ekerman doesn't seem to have any magic power. Like and yet he is this conqueror. I found that a really interesting dynamic of, I'm really excited to see more of Ekumen and see the side of him that led him to be this powerful conqueror and have two wizards who are clearly, like, incredibly powerful, so subservient to him. Like, what is, what is the degree of power of, of like, you know, um, charismatic power that he possesses that allows him to be in that position? I'm really fascinated by it. Yeah, because even he hints that it, it's like his power comes from what the Empire has given him. And, of yes. course, that just sort of leads you to ask, so what's the deal there? Like, why have they chosen him? Why is he? Why has this still led him to be in a position where wizards who, like, he kind of openly admits could just kill him with a flick of their wrists if they wanted to. Like, yeah. and, yet, and yet they will just act subservient to him. And even that, like, they're threatened by him actively. Despite yes, the fact exactly. He, he seemingly couldn't directly hurt them himself. Yes, um, I, that's a fascinating dynamic to me. Yeah, and, and of course, you know, we obviously learn they're not completely, you know, good-naturedly subservient to him. I, I, is it Zarf who is mm. trying to cast love spells on Ekerman's daughter or something? <laughs> um, yeah, but there's a an- great detail to be dropped. The fact that Zarf has kind of tried a few times to manipulate the situation to have uh, Ekerman's daughter fall in love with him, and it just has never really worked. Yeah, from the sounds of it, mostly because Ekerman's daughter is a psycho, um, yeah. which I, I can't wait to see more of her. I, I kind of hope that, like, halfway through the book, Ekerman gets killed off and she becomes the she real becomes baddie because she seems yeah. fascinating um, and we've barely even seen her. In fact, she's barely appeared, like, on screen. Yes, we ha- we've had almost no uh, description of her even. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, 
But I think we should touch on the idea that this starts out seeming like it's fairly kind of standard sandals and sorcery stuff, but it's becomes apparent over the course of this chapter that this is our world far in the future, or at least a world like ours, as in there is references to forgotten technology um, to the to the world that functioned in a kind of technological age similar to the one that we're in. Um, and this is like something that is kind of mystical and magical to the <laughs> people who can do actual magic in this world. Yeah, I yeah, I want to talk about this a, a bunch yeah. throughout the episode. I think because this is this this was the part that really gripped me into the story. Like when yes, when I was reading this chapter, I was like, okay, this is what sucked me into the world, and like this this was what I was talking about before. Like when the prologue established the wider world. If you didn't have this in chapter one, I don't know how excited I would have been to continue. Um, mm. I like I think you know the idea of technology and magic coexisting isn't a super unique one but i at least for me i i've never seen anything else do this really cool idea of like the way that technology has been discarded and is now treated as this like well it's treated like we treat magic like it just the way yes. ekerman refers to technology is like uh no we live in a civilized world we don't believe in such ridiculous things as technology and yeah. like you just read that and you're like what <laughs> <laughs> yeah definitely yeah it is it's like the way we would think of magic today is the way they think of technology. And th yeah. it's such an interesting vibe. And we'll see this come to fruition later on in uh, the chapters we're discussing. But I, I do think it's very, it's a very interesting part of the world and one that I'm excited to see manifest more. Yeah. And, and it instantly opens up so many questions in your mind. Like, where did the technology go? Why, like, why has it become so unfathomable? Um, yeah. Yeah, and, and like again, it 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 starts to it starts to make you question. I think like the validity or whatever of the Ekerman and his wizards, like just this sense of like them being afraid of and and thinking technology is lunacy. Uh, at least to me, I was like, well, no, they're the lunatics uh, because technology makes sense and magic is magic. Um, and I mean, maybe maybe that's the point. Like, I'm I'm really interested to see as the story keeps going how magic and technology start to play off each other and what the story might want to say about how they compare or, or yeah. whatever. Cause yeah, like I, I think entirely inverting the dynamic of them it was such an interesting way to open it. And I can't wait to see what, what, what is said by the end of the story about them. Yeah. Yeah. That's definitely an interesting thing to keep a pin in. Um, I think the last thing I want to talk about with chapter one is just we meet this frog familiar who doesn't have any <laughs> lines or anything, but is it's Zaf's familiar, right? Or is it Elslot's? I can't remember, but um, one of them has a frog familiar and it's so charismatic, even though it has no lines and does nothing. Doesn't I it, just want more of this frog. Doesn't it, doesn't, isn't it the one that goes and inspects the body and says that there's nothing to learn from the body? No, I, think it, I, think I think it does speak. It does it? Or is that Zaf himself? I'm not sure. I just mm. remember it kind of, shying away at one point of the fight and then being more like interested when the wizard is dead and trying yeah. to like poke around at the body and i'm just like what is this frog it's so awesome yeah like we haven't seen any other familiars or anything in the story yeah like so far the magic system is extremely soft because we've only been in the heads of people who barely understand it yeah. um i hope we get to see more familiars i mean you know we're, we're just coming from pact which i guess spoilers for pact if you haven't listened to to us cover it it has familiars in it, and they were some of the best things in Pact, so uh, yes. keen to see more of them. Yeah, totally. Um, 
Let's move on to chapter two, shall we? Yeah. Uh, so in chapter two, we meet Rolf. Um, he is kind of a very traditional farm boy, like slash junior yeah. hero I've written here. I mean, like it is, he, he, he is a trope, right? Like he's a classic fantasy trope of this farm boy who has some, you know, who comes across some atrocity of war, which in this case is basically these dragons. And I actually thought they were dragons, but they're more like, I don't know, kind of like slimy dragons that are very small. Yeah. Like, well, yeah, well, that's interesting. They, they seem to range in size or something, but like, yeah, definitely. Like, the point is, you're right. When I first read this chapter, I was picturing like, you know, 60 foot, like dragony yeah. dragons. Whereas later on, I think we were there. They may be man sized at their largest. Um, yes. And, and yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah, they're not huge things. Anyway, so these dragons from uh, from Ekumen's castle towards the east basically attack his village and uh, his family is murdered um, and he vows revenge on the Empire of the East and kind of, you know, is, is going to set off on his quest uh, and he crosses paths with this merchant, Muick, who he starts to travel with. Yeah, and, and so again, like, this chapter really justified the prologue to me because without it, like, I think I would have... I think I would have become pretty disengaged with how wait, wait, tropey you sort of mentioned Rolf is like, he yeah, he definitely didn't grab me at first. And this is an old book. It's hard to say if this is like a bit of a friend's effect and, you know, it's just, mm. it's, it's because we're reading it like 40 ish years after it came out. I think more than 40. Mm. Um, but yeah, like I, I, I am interested at this point now to see where it goes. I mean, I guess we'll talk about more about Rolf as we learn more about him later on, but he, he definitely, like, at the start, he definitely slots almost directly into, you know, he's just an innocent farm boy working on the fields. Uh, while he's gone, his family get murdered by, like, an evil, like, platoon of, of enemy soldiers. Yeah. Um, And it was just sort of like, okay, like, you know, I, I understand this story, I guess. Let's yeah. see where it goes from here. Okay, I, I'm just going to make the comparison here because I desperately wanted to in my notes and I held back, but I'm just going to do it. So it feels very Star Wars, right? Like it's it's the exact <laughs> opening to Star Wars, um, and I, it's interesting to me because I think about this and how tropey it is, and I think to myself, this must have been what Star Wars felt like for the people who, like when Star Wars was coming out. Like looking at this and looking at the story as it's starting to play out, can you imagine? It it makes me respect. Things like the and spoilers for Star Wars here, like Darth <laughs> Vader turning out to be Luke's father, uh, like I, that twist has always just kind of been a a meme because it's like yeah the most famous twist ever, right? But thinking on this now and applying it to this lens of like okay, I'm I'm you know six chapters into this story and we've got this farm boy who is like a nobody and and the story works so well because he's not a chosen one in any way. Uh, what a twist it would be if he was like Ekumen's nephew or something going forward. I can kind of respect that a bit more now. And I, it actually makes me enjoy this story for its simplicity more than I did when I first read it, thinking back on it. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see where we go with Rolf. Because, I mean, you know, he's the protagonist, so there's going to have to be yes. something. But, it will, you know, whether that's any divine birth powers or whether it's just him, I guess, I guess we'll see. Yeah, um, I kind of love how shit he is so far, though. Like, <laughs> I, okay, maybe let's continue a bit before we talk on this, because yeah. the next thing that happens is he kind of starts traveling with Muick, and they're stopped by soldiers just kind of performing a routine search, 
and Rolf kind of flips out and, and, you know, justifiably, I guess, because he's just seen his family get murdered. He gets, he go he hulks out and he flies into a rage and is almost certainly going to be murdered. Uh, but Muick reveals that he's got some kind of magical prowess and they defeat the soldiers before they kind of run to Muick's allies who are in the resistance. But the thing I want to talk about here is Rolf for most of this chapter is kind of shit. Like he's hmm. bad. He's not, yeah. He's not a hero, right? He's by no means a hero, and I quite like that. Yeah, I mean, he's very much the, the farm boy part of the traditional farm boy's yeah, like, hero he, trope. He's not heroic. No. I, he doesn't really... He Like, later on, he volunteers for a mission, but he, he doesn't really do it out of any sense of heroism, I don't think. it's it, At no, most, it's to revenge. impress a girl. Yeah, or to get yeah. to get revenge, right? No, but, but yeah, he's not he's not that farm boy who's secretly been training with his sword out the back whenever he got the chance. Yes, like he, he exactly is, he is just a shepherd. Or no, he was plowing fields, so he is yes. just a plowboy. Um, yeah. and I mean, like I I think as well, like something I definitely got very heavily in this opening chapter is the second Rolf gets back to where his family is, he just sort of completely disconnects, and the language that's used for the rest of the chapter is is very disconnected from him like it does a really good job of showing how uh, like traumatized he is by by what he's going through um yeah like there's the bit where um well the bit you mentioned where he throws the rock at, at the guy it's yeah. like it, it's such disconnected language that's used there I, I can't remember exactly what it was but something like you know before he sort of knew what he was going to do, the rock was flying through the air. Yeah, he he notices that he's throwing the rock. He doesn't think yes. to do it. And, and I mean, the same thing, like when he runs into Muick, we didn't talk about this before, but he's been running through just the forest aimlessly for at least hours, but it's super unclear yeah. how long he was actually yeah, running Yeah, it seems for. like it could be like eight hours, maybe yeah. a day. It like could have been overnight. Like, yeah. it's so unclear. And that's like the point is Rolf has no fucking idea because he was traumatized. Yes. He came back. Another part of disconnected language is is he sort of comes back, uh, notices his mum's corpse is there and it's it's naked and he's just sort of is like, nope, not addressing that thought. And I was uh, like, yeah, yep. I love the the writing here where he, when he's looking at the bodies, he I I can't remember the exact phrasing because I listened to this as an audiobook, so I couldn't take good quotes, but yeah, basically it's like oh he saw this face that if you put it back together it could have resembled his mother's face and yeah, it like it's such. It's really well written. I really liked that part. Yeah, it absolutely like it's it's very well written. And yeah, like the the whole idea of yeah, like he thinks on oh my sister's missing. Why would they have taken her? I'm not going to think about that. And yeah, exactly. and the text the text basically says yeah, look, he knows what's happening, but he's he's sort of refusing to think about it. And then like yeah. he he just sort of completely shuts down. And it's like you don't you don't really judge him for it because I mean you would like this is this yeah, is totally. the worst. Um. So yeah, like I think I think the writing in this first Rolf chapter does a really good job of establishing how traumatized he is by yeah. what happens here. Yeah, yeah. I, I think our conversation has turned me around on Rolf a bit. Like his interactions with Muick over the rest of this chapter, he doesn't present a lot of personality, but yeah. it is a pot- potentially intentional that he well, is you wouldn't be blank, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think Muick is really interesting. I like um because I'm reading off these notes. Like I, I took these notes as I was going through the yes. the, the book, right? So uh, some of these are already a little bit out of date, but I I, I was really and I still am interested to see more of Muick because Muick 
spends this whole chapter kind of giving off the oh you don't want to do violence like you know real peacenik vibes yes um and then you know when the fight actually starts muick just cuts these three soldiers up like it's sunday breakfast yes uh, and then runs off and is clearly like a high, as a senior member of this resistance and still kind of seems generally anti-violence even in the resistance yes. so i'm wondering like What's the deal there, basically? I'm very yeah. interested to learn more about Muick and where he draws these lines of nonviolence because he's clearly capable. Uh, so what, what's his deal? Yeah, I mean, it seems like he will defend himself with the full of his, fullest of his abilities, but he won't ever seek to instigate any violence. And mm. I, I find him very interesting, and I suspect that we'll see more of him as we go. Um, You'd think so. Yes, yeah, so I'm just... Yeah, I'm I'm very interested to see what what happens with Muick in the future. Yeah, yeah, me too. Um, yeah, and uh, Muick practices a different kind of magic, which is he he seems to have a supply of magical artifacts that he deftly uses to take down these uh, these soldiers, which again is very interesting to me, and I want to see more of it. So we'll see. Yeah, yeah, like seeing more of this magic. The more we see this magic system, the more I'm torn on whether I want to learn more about how it works. Because on the one hand, I think it's this great soft magic system and watching people like Rolf see what wizards can do is just like insanity and I almost don't want to learn more about it. But then there's also a huge part of me that, you know, and again, those of you who followed us through Pact will know, like I love unraveling how these systems work in these worlds. (laughs) So I'm very torn on this one. Yeah. Um, That's the end of chapter two, though. Uh, So in chapter three... Rolf and Muick have, uh, have reconnected with the rest of the Free Folk, um, or a kind of offshoot of the Free Folk, right? Um, and they kind of uh, hang out in this little uh, outpost, I guess you would call it, until their location gets discovered and they flee back to the main group where Rolf meets a few new characters. Um, so there's Thomas, who's the potential new leader of the Resistance now that their old leader, who's the character that we saw get murdered in the first chapter with Ecumen, is dead. Yep. Um, and there's Sarah, a girl who he immediately kind of starts teenage boying over. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I mean, yeah, this is sort of where we start to get a little bit more on Rolf. But again, yes. like he still feels like a, a bit of a blank slate. I'm, um, yes. uh, yeah, I, I guess, uh, again, I, I'm, I'm wondering how much of this is a friend's sort of situation where it's just, mm. it's been done so much since then, but it may have been slightly more novel at the time i'm I'm not familiar enough with books from back back here (laughs) it's weird isn't it because i i agree like i've written in my notes that rolf just isn't gripping me that much but the 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 book is obviously well written and well thought out to quite a high degree and so i'm there's like a level of trust that i'm willing to extend here that that these characters will take off more as they get beyond the very obvious kind of beginnings of them you know it's yeah it's kind of like if it was if it was blandly written or an interesting setting, I would extend it a lot less trust in the fact that Rolf is a bit of a bland protagonist. But um, I mean, even towards the later chapters that we talk about, he starts getting a bit more life. So I can already start to see it kind of paying off that this is a that that Saberhagen is a writer who does to some extent know what he's doing. Yeah, it, you, you're exactly right. Like I. I agree. I found myself not really in love with Rolf at this point, but invested enough in the world and the overall story to be like, I'm sure it's going to be fine. 
Yeah. Um, and I don't know if we're 100% there yet, but we're also only like halfway through the first very short book. So um, we'll see. Um, I, I did think the, the structure of this chapter was a bit weird mm. to me at first because it, like what happens is, is yeah, we meet a few members of the resistance at this camp they reached at the end of last chapter. Yes. And then about five minutes in, the location gets discovered and we very quickly run off to the next camp where we meet the rest of the resistance. And it was like, because I actually had thought we were already at the main resistance camp. <laughs> yeah, but I thought that too. But then you know, on reflection, there was only four people there. So if that was the entirety <laughs> of the resistance, it's real dire straits. Um, yeah, I, 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 yeah, I don't know what it was, but I'd kind of assumed that was already where they'd gone. Um, yeah. like in retrospect, it kind of made sense because what it let us do is sort of meet the characters a bit more spread out. Like, um, yes, there was a reason that Rolf is meeting. I forget the name of the the big one, the wizard that he talks to first. Yeah, um, he's just called the big one, so we can just call him that. He has he has an actual name, but I can't remember what it is. So we'll, yeah. we'll stick with his cooler name, um, the big one. The big one. <laughs> But then yeah, what a and, nickname. They, and they're like after they run away, then he then he gets to meet like Thomas and Sarah. Although Thomas is yes. quite brief in chapter three, really. Um, yes, I, I call him out because he becomes basically our secondary protagonist. Yes, yeah, exactly. Um, but I, I guess also the idea of them having to like run away and hide is, is again showing how under the foot the resistance is. You know, they yeah, are a, a the resistance. World is- I I think something that comes across so well in these chapters is just how hostile this world is. Like, there's no... uh, Even just, like, travelling on the road, they're basically under constant threat, right? And Mm. I think this book does really well to sell how dangerous this world is for these people. Like, there's basically no safe moments ever throughout these first six chapters. There's no point where they're like, okay, we can finally let our guard down and and you really do kind of feel that you do feel the like underlying tension the whole time just because anytime there's any semblance semblance of like okay it's good we're in it we're okay now it it goes to shit every time yeah i you're right i think narration does a good job of this because every character pretty much all the time is thinking about their position and how vulnerable they are yes as you said even when they're just walking around or when they're at home um like we're about to see Thomas and Rolf go camping and like basically cram themselves under a rock for like a whole day um, because the skies have those dragons that work for the, for the East. So basically all throughout the day, you have to be wary of whether you can be seen in the sky, which is insane. Um, And and that's why they work out of like a a shitty swamp in the resistance because the, the dragons can't see them through the, (laughs) the trees. Yeah, um, we get it, this. Sorry, no, continue. Yeah, oh, and just gonna say, even, but it, it goes the other way. Like, even Rolf notices, like, when they met the soldiers last chapter, he notices how, you know, one of them is staying on the horse, like, keeping lookout, despite the fact that Rolf notes there was nowhere for them to run because they're basically surrounded by flat marshland everywhere. Yeah. So there's this real sense, even for the east, they're permanently on guard. So it's just, everyone is just tense as shit in this, in this world. Yeah. And and never feel safe. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. Uh, the dragons, there's an inversion of that with the dragons, right? Because we learn that there's this weird relationship between the dragons and these kind of giant owl creatures that we, that yeah. uh, Rolf meets. And the way it works is the dragons. I think, I think they're released... called the guardians of Gahul. Uh, yeah. Sorry. The guardians of Gahul. Um, because these dragons are very strong during the daytime, but as soon as it becomes nighttime, the owls are stronger because they have better dark vision, et cetera, et cetera. Right. 
Um, yeah. they're, they're more better kind of silent predators. Um, and so there's this weird relationship between these two where it's a back and forth where during the day it's the dragons, during the night it's the owls, and it's this weird relationship that these species have with each other. I think it's, yeah, just this whole world is so precarious, you know? Yeah. I really like that duality they have where, because, again, because the owls work at night, it's kind of, it, it, it lend, and the owls are working with the resistance, it lends this idea like, you know, the resistance is doing small covert operations at night with the help yes. of the owls, whereas there's just thousands of these dragons and they just swarm in the skies, and that's so emblematic of how the, how the east <laughs> operates. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, I wonder, you brought up that idea. I hadn't really thought of it quite as explicitly, like the cycle between the two of them and how they, they interplay. I wonder if maybe that's what magic and technology are in this world. Maybe they rise and fall mm. in a kind of sine wave thing and, and you know, Rolf's going to be bringing about the new age of technology as magic dwindles or something. I don't know. Yes, yes, I could see that happening. I, I think it's interesting that there's no clear, like, magic is good or bad and technology, I mean, technology seems like it's going to be coming to the aid of the, the goodies here, but mm. assuming that these things are kind of systems, it would make sense that if magic is used by the goodies and the baddies, then technology will presumably also be that. So I'm interested to see what that looks like as well. I absolutely like I think that that's one of the things I'm most excited to see towards the end of the of the series is what Yeah. What we it's say about this duality. With a ray gun shooting at people. <laughs> yeah. 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 What 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 we end up saying about magic and technology, because to me, especially the way they're inverted in the in the chapter one, I've already started thinking them as of kind of really the same thing, but operating on different principles. Yes. Uh, and so I'm, I'm just going to be so interested to see what, what the message of the book is with regards to them by the end. Yeah, definitely. Um, so yeah, they're, they're kind of hanging out at the camp when one of these owl creatures appears and tells everybody, Hey, I think I found the elephant. So should we talk <laughs> about what the elephant is? Yeah. Cause it was actually mentioned in chapter one. Um, and we didn't, we didn't quite go into it, but, um, well, let's leave exactly what the elephant is until we get there. But uh, I, I, I feel I, like we even still don't. I mean, we have an idea of what it oh, means. We but, have a general idea, but you're yeah. right. We don't. We don't fully understand it. Um, and we are saying elephant because th that's at least how the narrator in the audiobook says it. And I <laughs> that feels I, correct as well. Yeah, I I love it as a way of like like the whole point of this image of it being an elephant is so hilarious because that's so mundane to us, but. The elephant is is treated as this like super, you know, it's like the holy grail of of their world. Yes, exactly. Um, and so the idea that they would mispronounce it as the elephant is just it, like if 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 that was something they came up with for the audiobook, it was perfect because it completely sells the reverent reverential <laughs> kind of mysticism the image of the elephant has. The elephant, yeah. <laughs> um. So basically, they talk about the elephant as being this remnant of technology that they they almost think of it in the way that we would think of like jesus i guess like well, a, a it, it's more like it, i i i stuck with that idea that like the holy grail like it's this yeah yeah it, true it's this relic of like yes back when technology ruled the world it was this great and powerful artifact and i mean it, again it, it's that whole thing where they treat technology the way we treat magic like it's like you know it's like if if we were sitting here talking about yes back when magic ruled the earth yeah. um you know the holy grail was left and if you get it you get all these amazing magical powers <laughs> but it, like, it, that's what they yeah. talk about the elephant as they they seem to ascribe a sentience to it 
which is interesting to me as well. Like yeah. it's not just a tool, it's a creature, right? Well, there's you no, know, there's like two disparate concepts there, I think, because there's the elephant, and then there's um like Ardne. Ardne, or... yes. Yeah, so, so, I I don't know how to spell that because it's audiobook. Yeah. <laughs> um, Ardne also seems to be a vaguely defined concept. Actually, it's a great line when um when Rolf is talking to the big one and asks about Ardnet and the big one says, Oh, I think we've just invented a God for ourselves. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah, you know what? That's exactly what you've done. <laughs> this is how gods start. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I'm, I'm super interested to see what Ardnet's still is. Cause that, you're right. That seems like a sentience. Is that going to be some sort of AI or something? Yeah. Um, but like, I, I also just love the idea of like the elephant um, being the symbol of technology as well just made no sense to me because I'm sitting here and I'm like, well, no, elephants are just animals. They're not even technology. It's just an animal. Yeah. Like it's like the symbol of like magic being like a coin or something, you know, like it's yeah. just, it's just an everyday thing. It's just I mean, a I, thing. Yeah. I mean, I guess, but then at the same time, when you take that step back and you're like, well, in this world, elephants no longer exist as the animal. You sort of like, Oh well, okay. I mean, we kind of already do that with mammoths, so we still have everyday elephants. But like, yeah. mammoths are this like big, powerful symbol, and of course, you know, we learn a bit more about what the elephant is um, later, and it, it totally fits with the imagery of an elephant. Um, but I want, especially considering elephants have history as creatures of war. Yeah. But just the way they're they're reverentially referring to the elephant, and you just kind of like, <laughs> that's just an animal. I went and saw yeah. that at Taronga Zoo. Like- <laughs> yeah, I saw one of those a few days ago. <laughs> yeah. yeah, totally. Um, so uh, chapter four is Rolf and Thomas heading to the cave to try and find the elephant, as described by this bird. Um, so there's a chasm that they have to jump across to get there. Um, and it's a difficult one. Rolf is brought along because he seems to be the only person light enough to jump across with the owls helping to give him buoyancy. Um, and so he jumps across, finds the elephant as Thomas is forced to flee from approaching soldiers. Yeah. And I mean, so this chapter is really split into two halves. We have this, this first half, which is just kind of Thomas and Rolf talking slash hiding under a rock from the dragons for like the whole day uh and thomas pulls out one of the most prized possessions of the resistance which is this uh lost relic from the age of technology which i think we would refer to as binoculars yep um i love love the way they were described (laughs) it's it's so great and the way the way (laughs) rolf's just like oh but come on there has to be magic that's how it's making my eyes get closer to the thing yeah It's, it's moving my eyes with magic and and Thomas is like, no, nah, they said they couldn't find any magic in there. And Rolf's just like, that makes no sense. And like, again, it's that fun. Like this story's having so much fun with that inversion of the way they think of magic and technology. Cause it is fun, right? <laughs> <laughs> that is just fun. Um, yeah. And I mean, you know, again, well, it's maybe a little bit on the nose, but we already start to see that Rolf has this kind of affinity for, for technology with mm. the way he very quickly kind of picks up the binoculars and, and like plays with them. And just falls in love yeah. with them. Yeah. Uh, like, uh, that's, I think that's going to be a driving force for Rolf moving forward is he's clearly a, a, a technophile. <laughs> yes, I think so. It seems like he's going to get technology pretty quickly, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, it's interesting. So the other thing that happens while they're kind of chilling here is they see a patrol going past with prisoners and they recognize one of the prisoners is Sarah um, from the, the camp that they were just at. And it, 
again, it's it contributes to this idea that this world is just hostile constantly. Like the fact that just this random thing like Sarah has just been captured and it seemingly serves no plot purpose yet. I mean, they're not going to be able to rescue her, at least not so far, right? <laughs> yeah. They just don't have the ability to do that. Um, it just helps. It, it It isn't for the plot. It's just to set the atmosphere of this world is hostile and that's just the underlying tension of the world is you might just get captured. Yeah, well, I mean, that's the thing. He's like, yeah, they have Sarah. Um, and Thomas is just sort of like, well, they didn't have the rest of the camp, so I guess she went too far from camp and she got got. And um, yeah, I guess that sucks. Is is basically yeah. his reaction? He's like, sucks to suck. Yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, like, and, and again, like that. That's kind of a recurring thing because you know, at the end of this chapter, um, we don't quite know if that was Sarah or or what her fate might be. Meanwhile, yeah. Thomas's fate is unknown to us and to Rolf at the end of this chapter. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's like a lot more of that. Like, it's part of that tension is like us and to us to an extent, but everyone else in the book never really has any fucking idea where anyone else is or whether they're safe. We don't know what's happened to the birds at yeah, this point. Yeah, man. Um, Can you imagine before mobile phones? This is just what it was like, Ellie. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But also in a world where people died all the time. Yeah, uh, or get captured. So yeah, like I, I think it's that extra tension of just these characters and and often us don't know if people are okay. Like so much of the time. Yeah. Like I, I, you know, and we, we we're gonna see that in a bit when uh Rolf makes his way back to the resistance at the end of of what we're covering here. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah, we'll have to see. <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a very hostile, gross uh slimy kind of world yeah yeah um so should we talk about chapter five um yeah i I guess one thing before before we jump into chapter five is that um like we start to talk a bit about the west here um Mm. and and we heard about it somewhere else but again that's going to be another interesting thing to learn more about like the west is something that's barely been touched on compared to the east i mean the book is called the empire of the east we learn um, that there are more like other kind of allied places towards the west that haven't helped out really with this invasion from the east. Well, they seem to be helping out, but not as proactively as they could be. Yeah, the or, or they're kind of dealing with their own shit, maybe. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I guess we'll see. I mean, the way they're talked about implies a sort of unity to the west that is maybe just like a bit self-protective, and and it's not really willing to help the broken lands as much i i don't know like i'll be interested to learn more about the west and what they represent because um yeah like like it would seem a bit simplistic to me to learn that the west is just the goodies um yeah especially if you try to fit the metaphor into like the real world of like the east versus the west and <laughs> and that like that's you know yeah exactly so so hopefully hopefully we'll learn a bit more about the west and and there's a bit more to them than that yeah i'm sure it won't go that simplistic yeah, I, I hope not. Um, so chapter five changes perspective, and we're in Thomas's perspective now, um, who was forced to flee as the soldiers approached, as we saw in chapter four. Basically, he 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 runs away and and does a few little tricks. He he's basically be being unintentionally followed by soldiers, right? <laughs> um, and and he is never seen by them. He he kind of throws this stone to distract them, and then he gets away. And he almost is completely safe when he realizes that he's been caught in the middle of a huge training exercise and there are basically hundreds of soldiers surrounding him. 
and he basically has to hide and try and wait out this training exercise. And he almost is just completely unintentionally caught before uh, the owls have to basically sacrifice themselves to prevent him from being discovered. Yeah, we don't know that they're dead, but like the odds don't seem good that they're not. Um, Either dead or heavily injured. Yeah, and captured. Um, you're right. It's a really fun kind of tension for this chapter because he's basically being chased and cornered by a group that doesn't even know they're looking for him. It's the unluckiest <laughs> thing ever, right? Yeah, he's he's accidentally stumbled into this massive training exercise and all these people are basically practising searching and cornering someone and he's just accidentally walked into the trap yes like it's, it's so fun it's this like hilariously tense situation because you're like well if he does actually get caught he's completely fucked but also there's that hope because they're not actually looking for him it's so fun yeah it's such a weird dynamic but it is a very fun premise for a chapter and mm. i i really like thomas as a secondary protagonist here like He's clever and he's smart and strong. And he, he's much more the kind of hero that we would expect in this kind of story. Mm, mm. Um, yeah, he's a fun... It, it's almost like he's he's a bit different to Rolf in that it mm. almost feels like he's kind of the same trope, but a bit further along yes. the journey almost. Like he's the, he's the natural-born hero who has grown up into a bit more of that hero and is, I guess about to unlock his actual hero's journey. Yeah, he, he's he's now the reluctant kind of leader of this group because yeah. the actual powerful character has just been murdered in the first chapter. So he's yeah. kind of reluctantly having to be the leader and he's obviously not great at it, but he's kind of figuring it out. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, you're right. Like I, I had just assumed because we had like four chapters in a row of Rolf that Rolf was just the character now, the POV character. Um, and I was, I was pleasantly surprised when suddenly Thomas was also on the docket because I was like, oh, this he's actually really fun. Yeah, totally. Um, so, yes, Thomas uh, manages to not be detected, but he's obviously unsure what happens to the owls. Uh, and he tries to kind of find his way back to Rolf, but along the way finds this dead dragon and kind of searches its pouch and finds this uh, orb, right? And as he takes this orb, it seems to summon a storm which causes a bolt of lightning to strike the orb, and Thomas is warned by a mysterious woman just in time to throw the orb away for a tip by lightning, and he almost is killed. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, and so this sort of... It's like we unlock a whole new angle to the story. Yeah, I know. It, like it we, just seems like he was going to go back to meet Rolf, but suddenly this whole other encounter just, like, forces him off in a different branch. Yeah, like the oasis had been seeded in our minds, and some in like chapter four, they kind of look at it and they're like, "Oh, that's weird. The storm's moving," um, and, and obviously that that comes up a bit later. Um, but like, yeah, it's kind of like everything that had been established in just the main area, the broken lands, and with the Ekumen and and a current branch of the resistance. It was just like, just as you start to feel like you've got an idea of the moving pieces in this current story, suddenly Thomas just gets yanked into this whole new aspect of it, and and we're going to head out into the oasis now i suppose um yeah and and i'm interested to learn what is different about there and what what we're going to get to say about technology and magic there yeah and i think that's why i do have more of a level of trust for this story is because it does seem like the world that is being built is very rich and there's a lot of space to play in and i'm sure 
the the kind of oasis stuff that we're starting to play in and the elephant stuff that we're playing with obviously is just part of this whole of this world that we're going to explore over the course of this series and i think there's also a spin-off series of books that that also is set in the same world so there's clearly a lot of yes well in fact like stuff we talked about it briefly in the intro um but this is the so there's the empire of the east here which is a, a little series of four books and then there's the book of swords which i think is the much bigger both in terms of number of books and popularity um so the book of swords i think is um Soberhagen's like main series and this is yeah. often considered the little prologue yeah. um so it was published first though i think so like it, it's cool that we've started here but it'd be interesting um, if we move forward with this to explore the Book of Swords a lot more and, and see more of the world as most people understand it. Yeah, definitely. Um, but yeah, I, I guess the, the thing I'm trying to say is it, that the depth of that world is already starting to come across even in the f- yeah. fifth chapter in this book. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. Like there's there's definitely a deep sense of world building in this in this book already. Yeah. Um, so chapter six uh, is Rolf. Waking the elephant, um, and we see almost immediately that it's some kind of high tech tank. Um, he basically yeah. spends time just trying to figure out what all the buttons do <laughs> before <laughs> realizing that Thomas and the owls aren't coming back. Um, and Sir Rolf decides to head back to the swamp to tell them, "Hey, I found the elephant," but he's captured by soldiers on the way there. <laughs> yeah, and so this was like, oh, of course, elephant. It's a tank like that. That makes a lot of sense. Um, I mean, tanks versus magic is going to be. I, I'm kind of keen. Yeah, for that. I know. I right? <laughs> it's it's like that part in the last Airbender where the tanks, the Earthbender <laughs> tanks, storm the Firebender beach. But I'm excited for more of that shit. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and I mean, a big part of the premise of this chapter is watching someone who has never encountered technology before work their way through yes. like a pre-flight checklist. And it, like, it was, again, I, I think this book's having a lot of fun with presenting technology as this very magical thing. Um, yeah. Watching Rolf like, figure his way through the checklist, um, which he doesn't even know what that means, but he can yeah. sort of, he, he grocks from the GUI. Again, like he's got that affinity for technology because even most people in the modern world can't understand the simple user interfaces. Yeah. Um, although, yeah, to be honest, I don't think I could start up a tank. If you left me alone in a tank right now and was like, it, it told me to get it started. Yeah, turn I, it on I, and try turning it in a circle, which is basically what Rolf does. Yeah, I, I don't think I'd succeed. It um, doesn't seem the most intuitive UI, <laughs> I've got to say. <laughs> like, yeah. I was, maybe it's just because we're seeing it, you know, through Rolf's lens, but it, I was struggling to understand what half of the things he was doing actually were. Obviously, yeah. some of them were like, oh, he's testing the weapons, he's testing the engine, he's turning it on, like, blah, blah, blah. He's turning on the controls and the navigation and stuff, but some of it was just nonsense. Yeah, but it's got nuclear power, which is why it makes sense that it still works. Could work, yeah. Um, yeah, so, yeah, I don't know. But it, it, was, it was definitely fun watching him kind of unravel what he was doing, and even though he didn't get it, I, th- I think the... The text did a good job of making it just clear enough what was happening that I was like, okay, so that must be he turned like auxiliary power on and, you know, and now he's turned this on and that was like the missiles or whatever. Um, Yeah. So yeah, just fun. Yeah, no, it was fun. And I do really like the idea of there's just been an old tank sitting in a cave for hundreds of years. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, I mean, that's, that's the end of chapter six, right? Yeah, 
I, I mean, yeah, and and right now, especially as you said, with the tank operating, we're left here sitting. We're left sitting here thinking, what? Why is technology gone? Like, yeah, you know, if they had nuclear powered tanks in this world, why? How do you reach the point where you forget that that they're there? Like, you know, if because my first theory was like, well, if magic just sprung up, did they just leave technology behind? But that doesn't mm. really make sense because, like, shit, like binoculars kind of proved their usefulness. Here. Yes. So what what happened to technology that's made everyone think it's barbaric and ridiculous? Yeah, it seems to me that there is some kind of, you know, war or something that happened at some point that meant that technology got left behind. Um, but I don't know what that could be that, yeah. that means it gets left behind so holistically. Yes, to the and to the point where it's considered ridiculous that such a thing happened yeah or, or could happen like the, you know the idea that binoculars which seem relatively primitive like or telescopes you know like that's not particularly advanced technology and even that's just been completely lost in this world yeah i yeah i'm excited to see more of the backstory of this world and it's interesting yeah. considering the the how this book started and my thoughts about how it started with what is seemingly a very traditional setting and a traditional kind of tropey story and where it is at the end of chapter six where it's deepening a lot both in terms of the characters but also in terms of the setting it it, it does make it a lot more interesting to me and make it a lot more give, give me a lot more desire to continue discussing this series of books yeah yeah like we you know we're doing a bunch of these pilots. We don't know which one we're going to pick up to be yeah. to be a full series. Yeah. If this one doesn't make it, I, I think, like, I, at least I'm going to want to go and finish reading at least the Empire of the East trilogy. Yeah. Um, and it'd be cool to come back and talk about it, you know, at least somewhere else. Like, even if this doesn't get picked up to series, I want to finish the story and then come back and talk about it because it's, it's such an interesting premise. Yeah. I'm, I'm definitely hooked. Despite how many tropes seem to be in this story, it does have a lot of interesting ideas and ideas that I think are worth diving into a bit more. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but unfortunately, that's all we have time for in our pilot, in our riding the elephant pilot. Um, sorry, the elephant. Uh, yes. So <laughs> if you enjoyed riding the elephant and want to see this series continue, please leave your thoughts on this show using the form that is in the description. That is where our um our decision to continue the show will be based off of. Uh, so go to forms.gle forward slash capital W lowercase s. No jokes, but it is in the description if you want to read it. Yeah, uh, yeah. Ruben was barely getting started on that URL. There's so, a so lot go, of characters in that so URL. So go check it out. Um, and uh, again, this episode was brought to us by Funderfulness. Yes. So yeah, so so thanks again to Fundfulness for um, donating during all packed up to get us to mm-hmm. do this pilot season episode. Um, I, I think as you can tell, we both really enjoyed diving into this this series. And um, yeah, so uh, leave your thoughts in the form, or if you want to chat with us directly about your thoughts, you can get onto the Doof Media Discord. Uh, there is a pilot season channel where you can discuss this pilot and what you thought of it. Now, to get onto that Discord, is it open to anyone, Elliot? It is not, unfortunately. Uh, it's just for our no, patrons. No, no, uh, no. It is open to anyone if that person pays $1 a month to the <laughs> Diff Media Network. Okay. Uh, I, I'm sorry I didn't get that. That's the that's the sticky yeah, you were throwing me. Um, come on. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So there's a ton of great perks for, for being a patron. 
uh you know not just pilot season related um there's there's tons of other things uh ruben and i have just started a, a game club um yes and the the voting for which game we do in that uh it takes place uh by well, just for the patrons yeah uh if you donate ten dollars a month or more you can come to our monthly doof and is it ten dollars or five no it's five uh, it, it got put down even cheaper it's a discount if you donate five dollars a month or more you can come to our monthly doof and chill hangouts uh this month a bunch of people on the discord are doing portal 2 co-op races so you and I, Elliot, are going to be racing Scott and Matt and a bunch of other uh, people in the community to see who can get through the most Portal 2 uh, levels, I guess, in an hour, I think it is, or two hours? It's two hours, two yeah. Hours. So we've had one time submission. Two of our patrons already teamed up and set a time. Yeah. Um, and, well, yeah, the two, it's the not two of us... setting a time because everyone's oh, time sorry, is yeah. two hours. <laughs> set a distance? Yeah, a distance, um, I guess, yeah. Yeah, so and so the two of us will be teaming up uh, to take down Matt and Scott uh, at some point this month as well. So, yep. you know, access to that competition and those streams uh, is all for patrons at the $5 and above tier. Yeah, totally. Um, so head on to patreon.com forward slash doofmedia and you can find out more about all the great perks that you can get for supporting the network. Um, yeah, so yes. I hope you enjoyed the pilot and we'll see you next week for yes. the next uh, we'll pilot. We're journeying into a pilot on the uh, Sandman series by Neil oh, yes. Gaiman, I think. The, ep- next. the title of that episode will be Mr. Sandman, bring us an episode. Is that, is I, I was, I was thinking we just that? call it uh, Bring Me a Dream. Bring Me a Dream? But, yeah. Yeah. Title we'll, Work we'll in Progress. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Hop uh, on Discord and give us your suggestions. As we always say at the end of each episode of Riding the Elephant, tell, take it away with that signature outro, Elliot technology sucks. See you next time.